Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Joining us now on the price action, Tony Dwyer, Canaccord Genuity, equity strategist. Great to have Tony with us on a day like this. Tony, many people trying to play politics in this market right now. Convince them they shouldn't. How do you how do you guess? We don't know how people are going to vote yet. We don't know. It's kind of 50 50 right now. Biden's in the lead, but we know not to trust the polls from the last election. We don't know what the implication of the Supreme Court nominee is going to be. We don't know if they're going to have the Senate, if the Democrats are going to sweep and have both the White House and the Senate. I just don't think it's an investable event. But what you do have is hesitance towards buying. But I, I don't think there's a it's possible. It, it would be just an unadulterated guess at this point to say, OK, I think X is going to win and this is going to happen. So this is what the market's going to do. You don't know what the market's going to do and whatever outcome may come until you know how the market trades into it. And history shows that when you have a significant uh, equity market decline in the end of September into October, it usually means According to the Ned Davis research chart that I use, it usually means that the incumbent loses. So we're going to I think the market's going to be a better tell over the course of the next yeah. month than any pundits. Tony Dwyer, your charm is to say we need a recession for a down market. Do you see a recession? No, I, I you know, I, this is guys. Remember what creates a recession? A recession comes when you have a need for money and limited or no access to the money. We have a historic amount of excess liquidity. We have the recession, the worst of the recession in the rear view mirror because we shut down the economy. And we have a synchronized global recovery. Is it perfect and ramping? No. And I wish that everybody was employed in every small business. My kids have a small business. Every small business was doing great. But we are still having, even though it's not perfect, a synchronized global recovery, according to all the data that any of us can have. So when you combine historic excess liquidity and a synchronized global recovery, the only time I've seen the data kind of like it is, is in the fall of 2009, which, as you guys know, I've been writing about you know, the concept of corrections like the fall of 2009. You had four corrections that ranged between 3 and 7% over the course of a month to a month and a half after the first 50% move off the low in 09 and the recession was just beginning to abate and the recovery was in place. Well, given that thesis, is this the time to double down on cyclicals, which as Tom, as John pointed out, underperformed yesterday in this new type of sell-off that we're seeing in response to no fiscal deal down in Washington? Lisa, it's a great question. Yes, is the answer. I would Double down, that's that's an individual question, so I can't answer that for anybody. Um, is it time to add risk when you're down almost 10% in the S&P 500 and more than that in the mega cap names? Don't forget, up until yesterday, the cyclicals were so significantly outperforming. It was the theme because they were so significantly outperforming the NASDAQ, the NASDAQ mega cap stay-at-home names. So clearly there was a bounce there towards the end of the day. You've really, you've taken apart the, the FANG stocks. They, they're back to where they were in May, right? So, it, you know, the idea which we've propelled and 
kind of took a lot of incoming for a month ago to not chase them and to advocate taking some off the table and into cyclicals to some degree that's been neutralized by the total drubbing in that space. These are good companies. They're not horrible companies. They've just gone up and to the right too much. Tony, that rotation stalled in early June, along with the rise in Treasury yields as well. That's where 10-year Treasury yields topped out around about 90 basis points. Do you see us putting together that kind of run again? I, I don't I don't think you can have that kind of run in the indices. I think it's going to be a stair step higher again, like the fall of 2009. Every time you had one of those corrections, you bounced back and went to a new high only to have almost immediately another correction. There's so much uncertainty, John. I, I just I think the idea yeah. that we're going to have this incredible, you know, parabolic move higher and five or six names. I, I thought it was really extraordinary. <laughs> I saw David Costin from from Goldman. Um, t- he, he mentioned and it really took me by surprise. That, that that five companies represented over 35, and I did the research myself after that, 35%, actually at the time was 37% of the Russell 1000 growth. That is the that is so far from diversification, it's extraordinary. So you, you really, it's going to take time for these mega yeah. cap names to kind of, um, I don't know, correct, churn, consolidate, base, whatever the name is, because there was such a concentration in them that now as they rally, all those people over the last two or three months that had bought them, they're looking, they're probably going to be looking to cut their losses, which means you're going to have some overhead resistance. Bottom line is I think the market's just going to be in this churning phase, certainly through the end of the year. Hey, Tony, appreciate the honesty. As always, it's great to see you. Looking well. Tony Dwyer there of Canaccord Genesee. Right now, we come to grips with our fears as we witnessed yesterday until a huge bounce at 2.47-ish p.m. James Athey is perfect for this with Aberdeen Standard uh, looking at long-term investment. James, how do you manage fear here? What do you do on a day-to-day tick when the fear is so evident? Hey, morning, Tom. We we would like not to be responding to any of these short-term gyrations. You know, we'd like to be positioned in such a way that we can ride out some of these short-term storms, you know, take medium-term views, be aware and cognizant of where some of the short-term risks lay and ensure that as best we can, the portfolio is robust to deal with them. I mean, it just so happens that what's happened yesterday you know, was was fairly good for the portfolios that we're running and, and fairly good for the positions that, that we have on because we've been very cautious about uh, being risk-facing in this environment. It's very, very difficult on a day-to-day basis at the moment. Valuation as any kind of anchor in any kind of financial market is almost impossible because things look so stretched and extreme relative to history or fundamentals. Um, but what we see is increasingly been a market which has ignored all incoming bad news information and embraced all incoming good news information. And when that happens, it's very difficult to point out ex ante what triggers will be. But when everybody's on one side of the boat, it doesn't really take much of a trigger, much of a wave to tip the boat over and everybody fall in. So we've been defensive and, and that yesterday was the right place to be. What does defensive look like in 2020, James? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, being it's the world of one trade. There's, you know, one of the banks we speak to has been calling it the world of one trade for a while, and, and it certainly is. Some people call it Roro, risk on, risk off. Finding diversification been very difficult. Um, I think it's interesting. You know, the two asset classes that I main, mainly look at, which is you know, core sovereign bonds, rate products, uh, and, and the FX markets. 
you know, sovereign bonds didn't really move yesterday. Treasuries rallied a couple of basis points. There was a lot going on in FX. I think that's been a trend recently where investors have seen bond volatility at zero, central banks mm. trapping yields in one place and said, well, where else can I go and express a view which might react to this stuff? So I think dollars, yen and Swiss francs are good places um, to, to put you know, risk budget to work where you can actually see some benefits if we do have a risk off period. But quite what your portfolio looks like obviously depends on exactly what toolkit you've got at your disposal. For us, it's definitely long duration. It's favoring the US Treasury market uh, and it's being defensive. You know, short certain EMFX, short risky, short idiosyncratically weak um, FX and long the, the current account surplus and or the flight to quality uh, currencies. Does that mean that you're betting on deflation? Um, I mean, express, expressly no. Do I think there's a chance that we end up in a deflationary depression? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a chance. Uh, I think it's very difficult. The decision tree, uh, the probability tree of outcomes going forward is, is probably as tough, tough as I've ever known because so much is dependent on a lot of policy choices which interact with one another and which will be dictated by something as, as unpredictable as, for example, the virus. So really tough. I think inflation is something we just don't understand well enough to have a high conviction call. And I could see it going either way. I could see as in deflation equally I could see as with really high inflation. Um, but again, recognizing that central banks are determined at the moment, I want to position for what they're doing, not what they're trying to achieve. So for now, that means they're keeping yields low, they're crushing yields, and they're keeping that as an asymmetric bet in my, mm-hmm. in my um, opinion. So I'm not too worried about inflation near term. I think it's definitely something that may, may happen later. We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Jonathan Farrell, Lisa Bramowitz, and Tom Keane. It is a most event. Tuesday, huge, huge news flow, particularly out of the United Kingdom. James Athey uh, with us from Aberdeen Standard. James, if that's the case, and if the symmetrics and the asymmetrics are so hard to judge, what is the value or error of being in cash? Yeah, that's, um, I mean, go back to the start of this year, and I would have said there was very little um, error, potential error. I think cash was a very attractive part of your portfolio because I just saw so many risks and I saw so little chance of the one true risk which you 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 wouldn't want to be invested in cash for, and that's really a lot of inflation. Today, as we sit here, it's a kind of bimodal distribution. There is there is a good chance of very high inflation. There is a good chance of very low inflation. And cash is kind of good for one of those and not so good for the other. Again, diversification is key, even if that's diversification which isn't giving you as much and more, uh, you know, as an efficient a portfolio as it would have done through history, yeah. there is still value in diversification. And I think cash is part of that. But I definitely think precious metals are a part of that today. James, I'm going to think out loud. So go with me and forgive me for doing this. Real yields for many people have been incredibly supportive of risk assets worldwide. But real yields have been driven by inflation expectations building up and rates effectively being anchored by the Federal Reserve. What I'm trying to understand, if we reprice inflation lower and real yields actually start to go the other way for that reason, I'm just trying to get my head around this, James, what that actually means going forward for risk assets with an inflation rate or at least expected inflation coming in. 
Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, it's still one big trade, but it's exactly as you describe. Essentially, we've seen break-evens widening through the period from the March lows, which has correlated almost perfectly with risk asset recovery uh, because the Fed has been keeping nominal Treasury yields kind of anchored around 60 basis points in 10-year. That meant that real yields had to fall fairly dramatically in order to get that increase in break-even inflation. That's also correlated with the rise in precious metals, which are often thought of as an inflation hedge. It's one big trade. So if that gets unwound, you know, what does that mean for risk assets? Well, I don't know if risk assets are the tail or the dog in that scenario. I think both is equally possible. Risk assets are up here, in my opinion, largely because central bank policy has driven them up here, not because there's some rational repricing of growth or inflation outcomes. I think break-evens are up here because they're correlated with risk assets. Therefore, if there is some shock which either forces um, equity prices, risk asset prices lower, or indeed pushes real yields higher, those are both going to look like the same trade being unwound. And I think pretty much everybody is in it. That could get ugly quite quickly. James, great to catch up, as always. Really good to hear from you. James Athey of Aberdeen Standard Investments. Right now in Washington, Isaac Voltansky is a wonderful policy watcher at Compass Point uh, Research. We fold in now uh, the uproars, plural, that we see in his Washington. Isaac, thank you so much uh, for joining us. Is any policy discussion dead? On the fiscal side for right now, the simple answer is yes. Um, policymakers like to say that they can walk and chew gum at the same time, but in my experience, that has not been the case. And the Supreme Court um, developments are going to overtake the Capitol, and they will be the topic du jour, which means that the focus on the fiscal package, which was already waning, is effectively dead at the moment. Isaac, how can people even begin to trade this, given the binary potential outcomes? In talking to clients, I, I find it interesting that there is still a subset in uh, among my clients in particular who believe there's this possibility for a grand bargain at the end of the month that covers the funding deadline as well as uh, some of the fiscal stimulus. And I think the reality is we have been conditioned over the past 10 years to expect Washington over time to eventually find its way to avoiding these fiscal cliffs. That assumption was proven wrong with these phase four negotiations, which I think is a near-term concern for markets, but I I think it's also going to weigh on the market's longer-term confidence in policymakers. Well, just to to sort of put a bow on this, Kevin's really talking about how this feels different than the normal Washington dysfunction. You're saying people have gotten conditioned to a lot of noise, a lot of messiness, and then for it all to come together. But from your discussions with policymakers, paired with your discussions with people in the markets, is there a disconnect? Are people too optimistic about that neat ending this time? The simple answer is yes. There is still too much optimism regarding a fiscal package by the end of the month. Um, My ilk um, in the policy world believe that Washington could come together because the simple reality is we need more fiscal support. And you don't need me to tell you that. The chairman of the Federal Reserve will testify before Congress three times this week, and he is going to suggest as much. And I think he's going to also make the point that the CARES Act, which was passed in March, actually worked. Isaac, right now, at this moment, the prime minister of the United Kingdom, at some, I'm going to say, political peril, is saying, let's go. We're going to reset. 
And Isaac, to me, the headline here is he's resetting for March of 2021. Is anyone in your Washington looking out, dare I say, to March of 2021? Not even close. We are focused on the next tweet. We are not focused on long-term policymaking. And I think that this is part of the system's failure that we that we have seen in Washington in recent years, that there is no long-termism. Um, and uh, that is well, most clearly evidenced by the lack of focus on a fiscal package that would help us emerge from, from this crisis. I mean, you were weaned in Ohio, which is a battleground state. Is any of this uh, cluelessness going to show up at the ballot box? Does this fold in to the political calculus of mail-in ballots and November 3rd ballots? At the moment, I think the simple answer is no. Um, the, the reality for many voters is that other issues are going to animate them. And that's why I believe that the Supreme Court headlines over the past few days um, can be played for both bases in, in different ways. And so that will be what the big focus is. Now, the point I want to make here is that as if the economy continues to show signs of weakness in certain corridors, that's clearly negative for the president because he is still viewed, at least in terms of the polling, as stronger on economic matters. So when we see economic weakness, it does accrue, at least in certain battleground states, to the benefit of the Biden campaign. Isaac, just finally on the polling, the story there is that there hasn't been much of a story for many people They've identified the stability in the polls in many places. Do you still identify with stability or are things changing as we get closer? I can tell you that I, I think that the polls will remain stable for about another week. And uh, most of my clients, as well as most of my contacts, have September 29th circled on their calendar. Yep. That is the first presidential debate. And I think that a lot of folks are going to get their, their first real feel of this campaign that night, because up until that point, it's really just um, uh, tested sound bites that have defined this campaign as, as we have two men yelling at each other from different states. And so to see them in the same uh, forum is going to be meaningful for a whole lot of voters, especially those voters in battleground states who are going to decide this thing. Isaac, from two men yelling at each other from different states to two men yelling at each other run in front of each other. Isaac Boltanski, Compass Point Research and Trading Head. Isaac, fantastic to catch up with you. Right now, arguably our most important interview of the day, folding in Fed uh, policy from Chairman Powell and also our conversation tomorrow with the vice chairman of the Fed, Richard Clareda. Diane Swank joins us, of course, so helpful, uh, typically on our Fed day as well. Diane, I want to get to the Fed and Clareda, but I first must ask you about the economic backdrop of the battleground states of the Midwest as the presidential debate goes to Cleveland and the wonderful Case Western University. This is going to be fascinating. What's the state of the economy in Ohio and the broader Midwest? Well, we're all suffering from the pandemic and unemployment rates have risen quite dramatically. What most people forget is as much as Chairman Powell emphasizes that this is a low wage recession, this has hit disproportionately those who can bear the burden the least. It also has hit college educated workers. And in fact, the unemployment rate is higher today for college educated workers than it was during the Great Recession. So it is a low wage recession, but it also has reached up into higher 
levels of education. And I think just the numbers are so loud, they get lost, or so large, they get lost in translation. Diane, I've got to move forward to this important conversation with Claire tomorrow. You know he is truly our expert on DSGE, which is a lot of fancy math. Forget the math. Let's go Latin. My first question to him will be on how a central bank acts when inflation rises. Do they get out front or do they get behind ex post? Where, where is the Fed going to be? Where are they going to act if and when they get inflation to rise? Well, clearly they don't agree on this, or they would have told us exactly what their triggers on inflation were as they shifted to forward guidance. It's still very loose. But I think what we're seeing is a Fed, it's not just the level of inflation moving up, but the Fed would like to see is that inflation get up to sort of two and a quarter, two and a half percent for a sustained period of time, which they've not been able to achieve. But also it's the trajectory on inflation. The Fed would not hesitate to act if all of a sudden inflation was moving up to two, two and a half to three percent very rapidly. That delineation, that nuance makes this whole new overshooting aspect of the Fed's policy very hard to convey to the average American, let alone financial markets. If financial markets really absorb what the Fed was saying, they would accept that the Fed is saying, we're willing to shift the um, balance of bargaining power between Wall Street back to workers a bit and allow wages to rise as a share and run the economy a little heat hot to allow workers to have a little more bargaining power out there for a period in time. If that really set into Wall Street, we'd see a very different Wall Street today. Diane, how divided is this FOMC right now? You know, it's mostly in the same direction, although you've seen Bullard talk about his concerns about inflation. If they were completely unison and, and in anonymous, uh, or I'm sorry, um, unanimous in terms of what they wanted, you would not have seen two dissents. You've got Neil Kashkari at the Minneapolis Fed asking for much more overshooting than the Fed is willing to do. And Rob Kaplan saying we weren't really ready to go to full forward guidance. And clearly the chairman felt some kind of forward guidance where they committed to overshooting after the announcement at Jackson Hole was necessary. So it isn't deeply divided, but it's clearly not all on the same page. And when you're talking about overshooting on inflation, it does make a difference if you're talking about yeah. a mild overshoot or this trajectory notion. And I think this is very hard to communicate and the noise is undermining their message. It would be harder to communicate, just as hard, if you did have a broad consensus on the FOMC, and I'm not in the business of making up excuses for Chairman Powell and what many people felt was a bad news conference for him just the other week. But, Diana, I wonder if that goes some way, to some degree, to explain just why he couldn't answer some questions in a clear and transparent way. Exactly. This is one of the issues that we saw was that he couldn't say exactly what these triggers were. The Fed clearly wanted to provide more support. You can read in his early comments that he's going to give to Congress today as testimony. He says, listen, we've done our job. It's your turn to your, doing your job, Congress, and we're trying to do more. Well, in expressing what the Fed is trying to do more about, he can't be clear about that. And if he can't be clear because he doesn't have a unanimous vote in the Fed and they don't have clear triggers, it makes it much harder 
harder to really say what this means. And we know that sort of the idea of for some time date-based guidance does not work as well as actual numer numerical triggers, but they can't agree on what those triggers are. All of this highlights the deep uncertainty about how much momentum there is in the U.S. economy and the global economy as we haven't gotten rid of the virus yet. So let's talk about the balance of risks because we're not going to necessarily come to some sort of conclusion on, uh, on those uncertainties. Where is the balance of risk? Incurring more debt to have more fiscal support or entering a period of a slowing economy that could potentially head back down into a further leg lower of recession? Um, sadly, I worry about it being the latter. The downside risks are greater given the in complete ineptitude of Congress at this point in time to act. We know that um, Jay Powell actually pointed out in his comments today that it was because of the support we had that we were able to get the rebounding growth we had. And now not only is it the course of the virus that determines the course of the economy, but now we don't have that support anymore and we don't see any forthcoming. I think with your earlier guest, I agree that um, financial markets are very much underestimating the ability of Congress to come together and the clock's already ticking. People are already going hungry. Food insecurity has picked up. And this really going into the holiday season when we like to gather a lot, seasonally adjusted, think about how many seasonal celebrations that we can't have this holiday season as the rate of virus cases pick up. And that's what consumers do on their own and firms do on their own. All those holiday parties that are canceled, this is going to make the 2008 cancellation of parties look like a cakewalk from a corporate standpoint and all the kinds of entertaining that usually goes on inside of restaurants, that just can't occur to the same degree. And then that will have its own slowing effect on the U.S. economy. At the same time, you're seeing the outbreak abroad in Europe pick up and these additional lockdowns in Europe. So I think this is a very dire situation. I wish that it was better. What bothers me is that we still are, are going into this weakness with so many people still unemployed. Well, you can talk about people not having parties, not consuming as much. You can also talk about if states and local governments don't get the funding from Washington that they're asking for and that they say they need, how much more could public unemployment rise? I mean, how much could we see the unemployment rate significantly increase beyond current estimates? Now, that's really important. We already have 1.1 million down still from February on state and local government employment. That number could compound. You could easily add another percent to 2% onto unemployment over the next 6 to 12 months um, as the state and local government struggle to deal with the holes, the gaping holes in their budgets. And I think that's very important as well because it's yet another headwind of cool temperatures and the inability to eat outside like we've seen. Yeah. and moving inside again that could exacerbate the situation. I know it's tourism, Diane, but just what's come up in the last number of days is some really good research on what I'm going to call the goods services partition. I think we've never seen it before. Given a natural disaster like a pandemic, some states are good producing, agriculture producing, maybe they have room to breathe, and other states are service sector uh, 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 der der derived. Does the, does the federal government have to take that into account? when they try to do stimulus someday? 
They certainly do. I mean, one, do you want to have enough people, enough companies still in business to be able to pick up when we can congregate again? And clearly a vaccine alone isn't a panacea, but it gets us towards that. But that's still a year away in terms of herd immunity with a vaccine. And I think it's very important to understand the need to keep these businesses. It's an 80 year trend in discretionary spending on discretionary services that we've seen come up that we've turned on its ear while at the same time, Time, you have higher income households, households work from home, where the idea that college educated workers aren't actually unemployed, they are, but they don't see it as viscerally as you see it with layoffs. Mm-hmm. But those households that have survived so far are buying new cars, they're buying boats, they're buying exercise equipment, they're buying a lot of goods that have kept the economy doing much better and come back much faster in some sectors than many expected. Also repairs and upgrades and second homes. That's only something certain com- certain uh, households can afford. It also, we've seen in the housing market, as strong as it is, it embodies this inequality um, and what we've seen in response to COVID so um, dramatically where you see people buying their first homes and getting more room. Those who can afford to be able to be further from city centers do, while those who can't are stuck and now facing eviction. And John, this timeline goes to what we've learned on the simulcast today, which is Prime Minister Johnson teaching us to look out to March of 2021. I'm sorry, that's the news item today for Global Wall Street. See you in spring, an extended period below potential for many economies, including apparently this one, the United Kingdom. Dan, great to catch up. Really good to see you. One of my favorites, just throwing that out there. Dan Swan, Grant Gordon, Chief Economist. Dan, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.